Hello, I'm Joshua Mallard, and welcome to episode three of Lost to Time. Lost to Time is a podcast brought to you by the Contemporary Art Music Project. In this podcast, we shine light on composers, instrumentalists, and more whose music seems to be lost to history. These musicians are typically from marginalized groups, and their music is definitely underrepresented today. In this episode, you're joined by myself, Joshua Mallard, and our new co-host, Han Hitchin. Welcome to the team, Han. Yes, thank you for the promotion. I'm very happy to go from indefinite guest host to permanent co-host. Yeah, those of you listening know that Han's just been killing it on these episodes, and, you know, (laughs) I'm glad to have someone else to permanently, you know, bounce ideas off of and talk to. Well, I'm so happy to be the person to bounce ideas off with you. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, getting into this episode, this episode is on Julius Eastman. Now, we're going to talk to you a lot about Julius Eastman, but first let's start off by talking about the upcoming or the past camp events. To start things off, I want to talk about some of the other podcasts. Of course, you're listening to Lost to Time right now, but there's also Earshot, with Logan Barrett and Tucker Johnson, where they explore the cutting edge of contemporary classical music. There's Play the Ink with their host, Zachary Hale. On Play the Ink, they talk about the relationship between composers and performers and do interviews with various guests. And then, of course, we have Musical Headwaters with their host, Diane, and Diane speaks with composers and learns about their creative process. So some really cool things to dig into. And we actually just had a special edition podcast with Tyler Klein, Piano Talk. You can find more info on that right on the camp website, and it's right there for you to listen to. All that said about the podcast, there's so much more going on with other things in camp. So Han, how about you tell us a bit about it? Absolutely. So Campground 22 is going to be taking place March 24th through 26th next year in the spring. It's going to be happening in Tampa Bay, Florida. So you're going to get some beautiful weather that time of year. And I'm speaking from living there for five years. And there's going to be a wonderful collection of performers up there playing some new music. Some of these performers are Melody Chua, Jamie Jordan, Doug O'Connor, just to name a few. And there's plenty more. So go to the contemporaryartmusicproject.org to see the full list of wonderful performers. And if you didn't apply, if you didn't meet the deadline, don't worry about it. Consider attending and tuning into the concerts for the festival. It's going to be really awesome, and you do not want to miss these awesome performances. Yes, coming from the Tampa area ourselves, I think it's great to see this happening, you know, bringing more performances to that area. Um, And I just think it's going to be exciting for everyone. All that said, if you missed some of the earlier concerts, for example, we had the NAC Benefit Concert in Tempore and Constellations, if you go on the website under events, you can find links to rewatch the streams for those. Those are really excellent concerts, and it's amazing that you know there's live streams available for all of that. Oh, yeah. I like going back and rewatching them again and again because they're so great. <laughs> yeah, replay value. Um, there's just really great performances on a lot of those. Um, there's also something else that you should know. Camp is hosting a GoFundMe. So these concerts are provided free of charge, but of course we need donations to continue serving our community. So if you go on the Donate Now 
but in under the event schedule, you can find the GoFundMe page where we are raising money to continue bringing new music to, you know, the Florida area. And of course, we'd be remiss to not say thank you to those who have already donated. It certainly means a lot, and it goes a long way to supporting what we do. All that said, I don't know where you're hearing this podcast, maybe YouTube or somewhere else on the website, but on Spotify is where you can also find Lost to Time and other camp podcasts. So definitely give a follow and you'll be notified whenever new podcasts come out. So get that in your rotation, you know, maybe learn about some composers, new music and history uh, on your car ride or wherever you are. Oh, yeah. Or while you're cooking. That's my favorite time to listen to podcasts. Yes. Turn this on next time you're cooking some breakfast. Uh, But let's get into the podcast. Now, today we are talking about Julius Eastman. And out of the composers we've talked about, Julius Eastman is the most recent, right, Han? I believe so. Yes. Yes. Born in 1940. And I'll just tell you right off the bat, This is going to be a bit different than our usual podcast because Julius Eastman seems to have led a very uh, (laughs) complicated, fulfilling life. There's so many details about his work out there, which is really great to see. Um, And surprisingly, a lot of that information isn't just focused on Julius Eastman's, you know, early life and education, um, which we saw with other composers. This is actually a lot to do with his activity you know, after school and, you know, his his work leading up to his death and afterwards. Mm-hmm. So we're going to sort of give you the highlights of Julius Eastman's biography. But of course, we're not going to give you this with the um, goal of you knowing every single detail about Julius Eastman's life, but getting sort of the important information and then touching on Julius Eastman's music before we wrap everything up on the legacy of Julius Eastman. Yes, especially for today, because there is so much that goes into the life of Julius Eastman. If we were to cover all of it, this podcast, instead of it being roughly an hour long, it'd probably be like 10 hours long. (laughs) It'd be hardcore history, like so many. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, if you, if you don't know that podcast, it, it has long episodes, um, but we're keeping this, you know, in a nice one hour package for y'all. So that being said, let's dive right in. So from what we can tell, the action really begins after Julius Eastman leaves school, but let's just give you, you know, a quick bit of information on where this all started. So Eastman grew up in Ithaca, New York with his mother, Francis Eastman, and he had a younger brother named Jerry. What's important here is Eastman began studying piano at age 14. So (laughs) another pianist, composer, you know, there must be something going on with that. (laughs) It's a trend. Yes. Um, Piano has to be a really great instrument to have as uh, in your toolbox as a composer. Oh, yes. But Eastman was quite good at piano from what we could tell and also a vocalist. So Eastman was a choir boy while growing up in Ithaca. Um, And it was from there that Eastman went to study at Ithaca College, and that was on piano. After about a year, Eastman was accepted at the Curtis Institute in 1959. So not studying composition yet, Eastman is studying piano, and at least Eastman was being a vocalist and a pianist. 
This was until 1961 when Eastman would change his major to composition. And let's see, he studied with Constant Valclain in, I'm going to butcher this name, Mike Slaw Horzowski. So Horzowski was actually a pretty noteworthy pianist. Um, and we can definitely tell that Eastman was kind of splitting attention here between composition and piano. And all the way until then, 1963, Eastman graduated from Curtis. And this is where things kind of take off in a way. Um, so the education part is a bit less important compared to how active Eastman was in New York um, as a pianist and a vocalist. So, Han, how about you touch on that? Yeah, so Eastman was said to have a really, really deep and rich voice, very notable, but you don't have to just take our word for it and believe us. Um, there are recordings online that you can actually find of Eastman singing as a baritone in a recording of the eight songs of a Mad King by Peter Maxwell Davies. And that's a great, yeah, this is a really awesome piece. And Eastman does a even more awesome performance of it, in my opinion. And I think, um, was it Boulez is the conductor or I'm pretty sure Boulez conducted this, but there's actually a lot of information wrapped up in how this whole performance happened. It's actually super interesting. And we're going to talk a bit about that just in a bit, actually. But if you haven't heard this piece, it's such a rare opportunity to like, be able to hear, you know, a composer discussed in this podcast have a recording of them performing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And this one is just really cool. Eastman is like killing it on this recording. And it's a very adventurous piece, you know, super animated, very, very theatrical. But of course, this isn't about Davy's work. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll also say there's you can actually find a picture of this performance. I think it's um, Buffalo, University at Buffalo. And this makes sense because Eastman would be kind of, you know, involved with Buffalo um, in a few different ways. But you can find a picture of him performing this and it's just like... It's you know, iconic. Cool. <laughs> yeah, iconic. Um, vintage, you know. But um, yeah, let's get into sort of uh, how this came together. Um so Eastman was involved in performing avant-garde music for sure. Like he was really out there in the scenes making things happen. And that's really important, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I would even go as far to say that what he was doing in the scene was unconventional than what most other performers and composers are doing. But we're not going to spoil yeah, too much. Spoil it. Yeah, <laughs> Um. So this performance of the Davies piece was with an ensemble called the Fires of London. Very intense name. Yes, very fire name, no pun intended. Um, and we'll include a link to that performance in the show notes. But in addition to that, he was also touring with the Greg Smith Singers in 1968. And all this put him on the radar um, of a conductor named Lucas Foss. Now, we can't confirm this, but apparently Foss encouraged Eastman to join the Creative Associates group at the University of Buffalo, which a lot of Eastman's most prominent performances would be with this group. Um, but this is also known as SUNY Buffalo's Center of the Creative and Performing Arts. So, yeah, it's kind of weird. That's I guess it's sunny Buffalo, like S State University of New York. Buffalo. S-U-N-Y in all caps. Yeah, you all get the idea. Um, 
But yeah, this ensemble is really important, and we can confirm that he was in this ensemble, by the way. But about Lucas Foss, it's more of like anecdotal. Um, that being said, you know, yeah, it's exactly what Han said. This program is a group of people who are, you know, invested in avant-garde classical music. Yeah, and it was really great. So Eastman was not only getting to do the type of performance that he wanted, but he could get a stipend, be involved in the community, and he was not required to teach. So it was a really good time. And he was with this group all the way until 1976. Yeah, and this is where we kind of backtrack a little. So we're going to be <laughs> shifting the timeline a bit, you know. Um, so the creative associates presented that pre presented premieres of a few pieces, but one of those was the one we just talked about, the Davies piece. So with that group, that's the one that Eastman was performing with. And they also did premieres of Eastman's works like Stay On It, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Rich? Um, so very notable um, pieces of Eastman's output were made with this group, um, which is really cool. So this was a great time for Eastman. Oh, yeah, he was really crushing it both as a performer and a composer, and that's just the dream. Yeah, it's, like, really impressive that he was just active, and it doesn't, I mean, he gets even more active in New York from there, um, leading up to where he moves to New York City. But <laughs> we'll get into that. Um, there's a bit of a story wrapped up in how his involvement with the Creative Associates ends. And this is where we kind of have our own disclaimer with Eastman. Eastman is very, <laughs> like, willing to put his political beliefs out there. Mm -hmm. You know, really, he doesn't pull his punches. And, you know, that's great artistically. Um, but there's, of course, some drama <laughs> that we found yes. um, between, you know, Eastman and other composers. And it's wrapped up in this Creative Associates. So we're just going to say we don't know if the details are confirmed, but we think this is a great way of opening the discussion up to this aspect of Eastman's work where he's coming into conflict with, you know, maybe some of the tastemakers around him, um, some of the homophobia around him. Uh, and kind of, you know, stirring the pot while he's putting his ideas out there. And there is some tea to be spilt between John Cage and Eastman. Uh, mm -hmm. And you can find this discussed in a few texts and journals, but I think it kind of leads into his departure from the creative associates. So um, we'll include some links that we found so you can sort of dig through the stories. But it goes something like this. Um, Around 1975, there was a performance of John Cage's songbooks. Um, so this is one of Cage's, you know, experimental music notation pieces. And this whole thing was actually facilitated by Feldman, Morton Feldman. And Cage was in the audience of this performance. Iconic. Yeah, I mean, it's. <laughs> we'll talk a bit about, but let me get through this story um, before we, you know, freak out. <laughs> but... These songs, um, you know, were Cage giving instructions to performers, um, very simple instructions, sometimes fairly vague. Um, and Eastman was one of the performers. And there's one where Cage instructed, I guess, Eastman to give a lecture. And it says Eastman invited a man on stage to undress him and make, you know, some vulgar gestures um, during this lecture. So a really surreal situation. But Cage was um, 
as it seems to be very furious with this um, and has a quote that is very, very um, contentious that says, um, ego is Eastman's ego is closed in on homosexuality. And we know this because he has no other ideas. So <laughs> very rough words that Cage is putting forth towards Eastman. Um, yeah, so let's just, I guess, unpack that. So this is Eastman really taking those instructions from Cage and pushing the boundaries with them. This is part of Eastman's artistic and personal identity. Oh, yeah. I also read somewhere else that regarding the same performance that at the end of that song of Cage, that performance of Cage's song, Eastman actually did a tongue-in-cheek, um, what's the word? Suggestion to the audience to experiment with their own sexuality. Um, so, and I just think it's so ridiculous that Cage is out here trying to be like, oh yeah, no, that this is all Eastman cares about is just his whole personality is about him being gay. And honestly, like that take is just so, I have a lot of thoughts on that take. Yes. Um, yeah. So this is the part of the podcast where you get a bit of the <laughs> controversy. Um, and it's something we haven't seen with other composers as much. Um, but you know, Eastman is more recent and very outspoken with his beliefs. Um, and he wasn't afraid to, you know, put that in his work. And yeah, I definitely agree. Cage is being, uh, extremely <laughs> disparaging of Eastman at this point in time. Um, but you know, it's interesting, you know, when we as composers give instructions in pieces that are like text-based and stuff, I think it's interesting that a performer has like, you know, really opened up interpretation with them. Um, mm -hmm. and in some ways, you could say that Eastman pushed that idea further than Cage did in some way. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that, you know, as composers, we think about when we're giving the performers the freedom to choose how to interpret um, our instructions or to make um, their own messages and pieces. You know, it can kind of take an idea that might disagree with the composer's ideas. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that happens when you write pieces like this um and another thing though josh you mentioned that this is pretty recent i would like to just state it is in 1975 so even in this time um oh i just being, mean eastman is a recent living compo like recent life yes yes compared to the others we've covered oh no you're deaf no i wasn't yes absolutely but even in 1975 like being I think it's great that Eastman was so explicit about his sexuality in the performance setting that would probably have mostly been made up of, you know, straight white men. So, yeah, that's a big deal. Eastman is not pulling punches and is really putting himself out there at a time where it's hard to be black. It's hard to be gay at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, so. I also wanted to bring up this discussion. I know not everyone is super interested in the, um, you know, messy details of composers' lives, but it's a great time to mention that they're human. And it's humorous when you're looking through biographical information on composers and you find this kind of stuff because um, it exists when they're all in their own social circles and they interact with each other. So, you know, this is... <laughs> primetime information 
you know, that we have on this stuff uh, that we can't quite get on as many older composers. There's less documentation, things like that. Yes. There weren't cameras back in the medieval Renaissance era. (laughs) Well, maybe they had to paint the drama or have some bard songs or something. But all that to say that this seems to have led to Eastman leaving the creative associates. But Eastman was part of other things. So um, he was part of the SEM ensemble um, in 1971 and remained with the group until 1976, which was also the same year that he left creative associates. So maybe there's a tie in there. But multiple of his works came out of this group, like Creation, Joy Boy, That Boy, and Feminine. Um, And it's from here that Eastman would head all the way back. Well, not all the way back. He's in New York, but he's going to head to New York City Mm -hmm. and continue doing what he does, performing and composing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so much he did during this time. One of those things being that he was touring with Meredith Monk, recording Dolman music and Turtle Dreams. If you don't know who Meredith Monk is, do check check her out. It's great. Yeah, for sure. Um, Actually, I mean... We'll, maybe, we'll we'll see who else we could do episodes on. But um, yeah, there's so many great composers that we can cover in this podcast. Um, so all that to say, Eastman stated in a 1976 Buffalo News interview that he wanted to be black to the fullest and a musician to the fullest and a homosexual to the fullest. So Eastman is really um, invested in being a part of the avant-garde scene and being himself. Yes, and that is something that is so important. He was not going to sacrifice, you know, his ability to express his identity, his beliefs, um, and himself in order to participate in avant-garde classical performance. Yeah, and that's a big deal. Um, This is really an important part of his output that you can't really just skip over. You'll see it in the titles of his pieces for sure. Yes. Um, So, Han, how about you tell us a bit more about um, his life after this, some more aspects of it? Yeah. So Eastman, something to know about him is he had a tendency to stretch the bounds of gender norms, especially when it came to his expression and... This is something that was seen not just in terms of his fashion sense, for example, but also in his music. So Richard Valetudo, I hope I am pronouncing that correctly, is a wild-up pianist, but also a scholar on Julius Eastman. And Valetudo wrote that Eastman's fluid fashion sense seems to kind of have an extension and a connection to Eastman's compositional sensibilities. So while Eastman would be gending would be bending gender norms as much as he would in playing with musical genres. He would be, you know, taking genres and experimenting with them. Um, he moved through the world in different styles that ranged from femme to the classic gay macho. And he would also, you know, try out different genres in his compositions. Um, and as we mentioned, he has no shame when it came to his expression. He was a proud gay black man who just you know, said screw gender norms in the 1970s. <laughs> yeah, he was really um, putting his his opinion out there and really expressing himself. Um, we'll include um, some of these quotes and links in the uh, show notes for this yeah. so that you can dig into that more. Um, so typically during this part, we talk about, you know, 
legacy and awards and all that stuff. But this is just important to know. Eastman is like really active in the New York scene and mm-hmm. all of this stuff ties in together in a super complex way. So we invite you to, you know, look up the stories. There's so many anecdotes about, you know, what he did in concert halls, you know, changing performance spaces and defying norms and stuff. Um, so we invite you to develop your own opinions and really, you know, treat um, Eastman like a human being, you know, what I mean by that is just, you know, go research his life, listen to his works and, you know, really interact. It'd be great if you can walk away from these podcasts with interest in the composer to, you know, dig into them on your own time as well. Or maybe you listen to their music and you decide, you know what, this ain't for me. I don't like this. I hate this person's music. You know, that form your own opinions, listen to stuff, decide what you like and what you don't like. Yeah, I mean, giving a listen is the most important thing. And all that said, we're going to dive into the music of Eastman. Um, but first, let's talk about about like his compositional style. A lot of people describe Eastman as a minimalist. Um, and Eastman himself described his music as organic, involving gradual accrual and accumulation, often followed by gradual disintegration. So those are some very interesting things to describe your music as, but I think it really fits in a few different ways. Um, and we'll definitely be talking about that a bit more. But um, his music does combine like aleatoric um, aspects with also like pop idioms and, you know, uh, pop aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, so something you might have heard from some other minimalists, but I think the way that Eastman does it in particular is really interesting and sets him apart from people like, you know, Steve Reich or like Philip Glass. Um, so I think it's a good fit to say Eastman was a minimalist, but of course, we say that with some hesitance because we want you to explore Eastman's music because you're going to find yourself really surprised by the different curveballs in his music. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, this is like a bit of, I guess, a spoiler warning. Some of the um, pieces we're going to cover have these amazing twists in them. And, you know, we're going to be talking about that. So definitely, if you want to avoid being spoiled, go and listen to those and then, you know, come back and hear what we have to say about it. Yeah, you can pause. Don't worry about the the food you got going on the stove. Just pause, listen to the piece while your pasta's finished boiling. Then as you strain it, turn the 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 podcast <laughs> back on. Right now. <laughs> oh, I'm just pl- planning out my evening tonight. I don't know about you. Well, one thing we do know is these pieces are really great and we're going to start with Stay on it by Julius Eastman. So, Han, how about you take this one away? Absolutely. So Stay On It is a piece for open instrumentation. However, typical performances include piano, mallet percussion, and a voice. And the voice usually repeats the title word, Stay On It. And the piece very much relies on structured improvisation. So Eastman wrote Stay On It for the Creative Associates um, in 1973, in which they toured and recorded this in live performances. Um, Eastman's brother, Jerry, actually noted that this piece has a lot of Caribbean influence in it, as well as pop influence. And if you listen to it, it also has a similar structure to a lot of minimalist pieces. Um, 
So as we mentioned, it is for open instrumentation. And we do have an excerpt of performance notes as below. Yes, I love seeing performance notes. Now, I'm not too sure if these are written. I guess they're performance notes by Eastman himself. Um, but of course, it was awesome the last time we had those Undine Smith more like really detailed backstory into the piece. Um, this is a bit different. Eastman's notes at least say the chordal part, which is the main theme, may be played by the piano or mallet percussion or both. Alternatively, players of single line instruments may choose to play one of the lines in the main theme that falls in a register that is comfortable and will lend itself to balance within the ensemble. There's also instructions like players may choose to play and repeat the layered cells at their own discretion. It is possible to move between the chordal and layered elements, but the themes must be repeated throughout each section by at least one player. Each element may be repeated ad lib. Cues to move to each next section may be visual or a predetermined musical cue. So a lot to unpack there, but there's something really interesting here going on. First is like there's those instruments, single line instruments, and they can play one of the lines of the main theme. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, something like in C, but um, which is Terry Riley. Mm -hmm. um, but something very different is going on here. You notice in the performance notes, it says um, each element may be repeated um, and players may choose to play and repeat their own cells. But it also says you can move between the chordal and layered elements, but the theme also always has to be repeated by at least one player. And there's this super interesting thing. Like, <laughs> I guess first, let me tell you this story is I first heard this piece from the middle of it like someone played it and it was right in the middle and it sounded like wildly different than <laughs> what you are introduced to in the first half of the piece or so like there's this strange effect where these dissonant elements kind of creep in but that theme is constant and what's it's I say it's not always an additive effect because sometimes what happens is like everyone's playing the theme and then one person goes off and plays this other thing, some other piece of material that conflicts with the theme. And then gradually these players flake away. They're breaking off from the main theme, but that main theme is becoming like less and less in the group. And then there's one person playing it. So instead of like adding additional elements, it's almost like we're swapping some elements out instead mm -hmm. of like stacking on top, which I think is a really cool approach to this like minimal aspect of the piece. Yes, I love that it takes this direction. And I really like your story about how you first listened to it starting in the middle. It reminds me of how the first Star Wars movie I watched was Revenge of the Sith. And I was very lost <laughs> at, at like five years old. I'm like, why are those two guys fighting? But yeah, this is definitely a piece you want to listen from beginning to end and just hear the process of how it um, evolves and unveils. It's definitely really interesting. Well, maybe you should, um, someone should start with the holiday special of Star Wars. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. Don't do that. But these, I guess, twists, these like surprising elements are something that's discussed a lot about Eastman's music. And I really got to commend Eastman. Eastman really knows how to sit on an idea and really make it evolve slowly. It, it reminds me of like, you know, generative music. 
Um, like for example, I was listening to this Brian Eno interview where he has these like scripts that can take a percentage of the MIDI notes and change the pitches. So like 10% of the pitches drift from the pattern. And that's kind of like what happens over the very long duration of some of these Eastman pieces. Um, but I kind of also think of it like you fall into something that you didn't see coming. Like it's not like so gradual that um well i mean it is almost so gradual that there's a moment where you realize oh i'm in something completely different <laughs> the soundscape yeah. is totally different and you're like how did we get here when did we get here you know what's going on and i think that's what's amazing this like crazy clash like um we mentioned that there's like the pop influence and the caribbean influence and that's very true for like the first like half or more of the piece the main theme is really like you know it's a groove it's positive it's rhythmic it's consonant um and then like these elements creep in that are really dissonant and greatly contrast with that which i think is really cool um but it's something that i think anyone can hold on to like if you're saying oh i only listen to bach you know listen to this piece yeah. you you're going to be able to connect with the ideas and if you're definitely a listener of you know a lot of 20th century um you know western classical music you're going to definitely be into this stuff um mm -hmm. <laughs> i know minimalism comes with its own criticisms but you know there's some really good stuff happening in here yes i mean just in this piece alone it has so much potential for people of lovers of so many different types of genres to find something that they like about it. Yeah. And I really think, um, one thing I guess that we could talk about is like the listening experience. Like mm -hmm. these are pieces that I think are more friendly towards listeners today. Like, you know, we listen to streaming platforms. You might even be listening to this on Spotify or, you know, maybe YouTube. And I think these are pieces where you can really, kick back and relax and kind of like interact with the music in a way. A lot of these pieces are very long, by the way. So um, the shortest performance I could find on Stay On It was about like 16-ish minutes long. And, and they're usually around like 30, right? Yeah, they can go from 15 to 30 minutes. And then one of the other pieces we're going to be talking about is over an hour long. So Julius Eastman pieces are definitely not like, oh, I'm just going to listen to this while I... I don't know, what's a five-minute task? Like vacuuming my my bedroom. Like, no, <laughs> this is like something you want to sit down, some sit down and just dedicate an hour of your life to listening to some Julius Eastman. But or I more. mean, you know, we don't want to be background music, but you know, I feel like it's an amazing experience to like, you know, if you put this on in the background and then mm -hmm. you uh, I don't know, blink and then like a few minutes later you're in some completely different thing. And then a minute after that, like it, the piece has this weird way of like pushing you into this completely different soundscape and then slipping you right back into where you were at the beginning, mm -hmm. which is very, very interesting. And I don't know, maybe think of these pieces as like an experiment on the listener. Yes. I mean, maybe all pieces are experiments on the listener, but these really kind of interact with the pattern recognition part of humans. Yes. So I think that's really cool. And I think that's what you're going to like a lot about this piece. Um, 
But yeah, I wish there was a bit more information like on the performance notes, but um, there's some um, other minimalist pieces we mentioned, like Terry Riley's NC. Um, you know, it could be really cool to see this played as often as something like NC is, or just, you know, I think what's interesting is since it's open instrumentation, you can get some friends together and make this happen. Oh yeah, absolutely. And if you don't have a vocalist friend, just dedicate one person to saying stay on it. Um, obviously at the right pitch and stuff. <laughs> I, I need to see a score. I mean, maybe I could do it and I don't consider myself a vocalist at all. Well, <laughs> the vocalist is an interesting note because it takes a while, right? For the vocalist to come in, at least I was surprised when the vocals came in. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, where'd this come from? Yeah. Um, and it really took a while for me to know that it was saying, like, stay on it. And you thought that was the drastic shift in the piece. <laughs> well, you know, with some of these minimalist works, they have a way of, like, you get so comfortable, so used to what's going on, that the changes are so, like, shocking in a way. Yes. But really cool for sure. But, yeah, This is a piece where you can get some musicians together and, you know, put this on a recital or just have fun with it. These are, I mean, maybe there's a community aspect to playing these works, kind of like, you know, a sonic meditations vibe. Yeah, this is definitely something that I could see people programming, especially on concerts that have an emphasis on you know, open instrumentation, um, accessibility of performance where you could even invite audience members, maybe not with this because it requires instruments, but it definitely draws along that line of, you know, programmability. And I think that it's something that, you know, it's like, why do we not see it on as many concerts? I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some details we'll get into a bit on like where Eastman's music is today or why it's not you know, played as widely. Uh, That being said, let's talk a bit about this next piece, Feminine. Yeah, absolutely. So Feminine is the piece we were alluding to earlier. It is over an hour-long piece, but this is wild. The score itself is only five pages of manuscript. And the entire piece, the hour-long piece, I remind you, is centered around this one melodic building block, a two-note motive that is introduced in the vibraphone. And this motive holds together the entire piece like glue, and this is common for many minimalist works, um, hence why we think a lot of Eastman's work does qualify as minimalist music. Um, And near the end of the piece, um, there's a... it It does a 180, which is typical of a lot of his pieces, And breaking away from the two-note motive that's been going on and progressing for um, almost an hour, a hymn, Be Thou My Vision, um, starts to play. Yeah, I think, though, what differentiates this from other, you know, minimalists, and I don't even like just grouping, you know, (laughs) Eastman as a minimalist. You Mm -hmm. should definitely listen to his other music because... There's definitely non-minimal works out there and stuff that's just like, you know, really, really amazing. And Mm -hmm. this is amazing, too. So definitely listen to this one. But um, that two note motif really is tying everything together. It's constant, like and it's periodic. It's not just like a sustained note or anything. It's it's a gesture. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's what's cool. You can kind of hear it in the center of everything, Um, at least in the. 
the echo ensemble um the vibraphone part is actually in the center Mm -hmm. so on that note it's kind of interesting because everything visually and audibly sort of shifts around that centerpiece around that two note motif so you're going to hear that as this piece progresses and it's really amazing because you'll be so familiar with the motif that all these little additions of like you know interlocking rhythms and different textures and stuff are gonna uh, like take you on a journey i guess oh yes an hour-long journey yeah i mean this would be cool to be in the concert hall of though like just to sit back and like you know, hear this all happen. It's it's kind of a surreal experience because, you know, you'll you'll get so used to that vibraphone part, and then <laughs> here comes be thou my vision. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's some really cool um, intricacies going on in the parts. Absolutely, and it is such a conveying listen. Um, I was reading up on some reviews because this was actually initially released as just a whole album. The one piece was. A single album and I was reading up on some reviews of it and one person stated that the second they were they listened to it the first time through and the the moment that it finished they went back and listened to it again because they were just so impressed and so enthralled by what happened they just needed to hear it again and I think that's just awesome yeah and I think the hymn and such is like a nice touch too because it's kind of like with stay on it where you really think you know what's going on and then there's like these you slip into something else mm-hmm. or even like the material placed around the two note motif starts getting treated in different ways and you're like able to recognize it but you're also seeing it in a different context presented in a different way and i think that's what's really amazing and yeah it's almost like an experiment on the listener which it doesn't surprise me that you could finish an hour-long piece like this and be like oh well <laughs> yeah because for that hour this was a constant in your life in a way you know mm-hmm. it it almost reminds me of um luigi nono's prometheo except this not- piece <laughs> almost yeah i don't know about that um but that's an awesome piece you know that you should definitely check out too um but what's i guess maybe what you're getting at is that it really pulls you in maybe like it pulls you into that environment that it was played in pulls you into the music and when it ends it's kind of it feels out of place you know you're in silence now or you know unless you're john cage it's not silence but you're in the non eastman music world you know Mm mm-hmm but I think that's what's really great. And I also think, you know, it'd be um, interesting to see this one live. But what's cool about it is that it's an hour longish, um, give or take. And you could make a whole concert of just this piece. Oh, yeah. I love I love my favorite kind of recitals are the ones where it's just one long piece. And I feel like this piece in particular, Feminine, would be an excellent piece to just sit down and hear live um, for an evening and then just be able to share that experience with the audience, reflect on it. It's just awesome. Yeah, and I think what's really cool about it is, I mean, this is like a, it's not a huge ensemble Mm -hmm. and there's some great compelling visual aspects, at least depending on the performance, but, um, you know, you can really sort of see it come to life on stage, like the visual aspect. Mm Mm-hmm. 
that being said, let's talk a bit about, you know, Eastman's legacy. Where's his music now? Is it being programmed often? And of course, the complications surrounding his death. Um, so that's definitely something that uh, I guess let's jump right into. So the 80s or the mid 80s towards the end of Eastman's life would be very, very turbulent. So I guess we'll just start off by saying Eastman was releasing like a lot of music in the 70s and then it kind of drops off in the 80s when um, it seems like after touring and stuff, his opportunities kind of dried up or weren't where, you know, he needed them to be and he would fall into some like drug and alcohol abuse Um And this is kind of where, I guess, things get even more complicated and his output kind of gets pulled into this because um, he was making a lot less music. And at one point he was evicted and his some of his manuscripts were confiscated. Um, And then, of course, we mentioned that, you know, a lot of his pieces have, you know, um, varying open instrumentation and his notation methods are um, not always easy to interpret. So there's kind of this difficulty in, um, you know, getting manuscripts of his music, getting them engraved as scores and stuff. So um, there's also the fact that towards this ending part of his death, I guess he fell out of his social circle a bit and into obscurity in a way. Um, So this is kind of just like a really low point in Eastman's uh, career and in his life until his death 1990 um, it's actually pretty tragic and his death wasn't even reported until like eight or I guess like yeah it was unreported until like eight months later um, where he got a obituary in in village voice by Kyle gone um, so very tragic and especially for someone who was on a streak more or less, you know, through the 70s. So all that said, there is a bit of a revival effort of sorts. Um, You know, people are trying to get their hands on Eastman's music again and get um, some of his music performed, but there's some difficulty there because, you know, people close to him or who, who knew him are the most likely to be able to access his manuscripts. But, you know, there's all these complications. Um, that being said, the scores that are out there and the pieces that are out there are really amazing. And um, I'm at least glad to see some ensembles start to um, sort of revive his music through music festivals and you know putting it out there but isn't it scary to say that like a composer who died in 1990 needs a revival after composing so many really good pieces yes just 30 years after his death i mean it is just really heart aching to know how he went out and just knowing that i mean i don't want to you know roll credits but that his music was almost lost the time if it weren't for the fact that so many people are passionate about, hey, let's look at this music by Julius Eastman. Hold on. He did a lot of really great, innovative things. We should be, you know, performing his music. We should be listening to his music. We should be studying his music. And I think he has so, so, so many incredible works I recommend that, you know, everyone listening, go check them out. Um, 
we can't list all of them here today, but there's definitely a lot of them that are worth a listen. If you just search his name, so many different titles will come up. Oh yeah. And, um, I guess it goes without saying like he was in the scene around very big names. I mean, performing pieces conducted by Boulez, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) clashing with people like John Cage, (laughs) um, you know, working with Morton Feldman and touring with Meredith Monk, you know, doesn't this seem like someone who should at least, you know, really be remembered, but you don't hear Julius Eastman brought up in the same conversations as people like John Cage, which, um, you know, I think has a lot to do with the fact that he is black and gay. Yeah. And also, I'm not sure, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't he also contract HIV shortly before his death? I think so. Yes. Yeah. Um, And during the 80s, um, HIV and AIDS were very highly stigmatized, especially, you know, surrounding gay men. So it was just a very, very, you know, sad situation that this is what's happened. Yeah, it's it's definitely um, very tragic. But on a positive note, um, you know, there's, I think, enough um, amazing pieces out there by Eastman that are being on music festivals um, almost every year, at least, um, that, you know, are surviving, that people can get their hands on. Mm-hmm. So I think this is something that I hope to see more of. More of these Eastman pieces performed um, would be great. Absolutely, and I would love. To, absolutely, and I would love to see more Eastman pieces played on concerts. Yeah, and uh, also these manuscripts. I hope you know get discovered. It's actually this way with a lot of composers, where like there's just these manuscripts out there locked up somewhere in a library, or I guess in a police the, department. Yeah, in a police department. Um, it would be, um, you know, a shame if that's the main contributing factor to not getting these pieces performed. But we definitely think there's more going on there, you know, mm-hmm. because the pieces that are out there that are recorded, um, that are really amazing, are not discussed enough. They're really not. Now, all that said, um, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and definitely just give Julius Eastman's pieces a listen. There's a great variety. The two we discussed don't even scratch the surface, you know? Oh, not at Um, all. (laughs) And again, Julius Eastman was definitely, we kind of, um, I guess like didn't discuss some of these pieces in depth, but a lot of them have um, Eastman's politics right there. You know, he's really putting his beliefs, um, his social identity in these pieces. So it's really a great look at, you know, that sort of how someone from that period of time interacted artistically um, with their music and with the world around them. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of pieces where he makes it very clear, even right in the title, um, what his message is. Yeah. (laughs) There's some, some titles that we did not say on the podcast, but um, definitely go and give a listen, be a curious listener. Um, But this is a great time for us to, wrap things up and remind you about some of the upcoming cam events and uh, podcasts 
So first things first is we definitely have those other podcasts and we recommend you check them out. There's something for everyone, you know. Play the Ink is about the relationships between composers and performers. Musical Headwaters is talking about the creative process of composers or behind their compositions. Um, and then Earshot is exploring, you know, the music that's coming out right now, right at the cutting edge. And of course, you have us two talking about the music that is lost to time. But, um, you know, some of this is pretty recent to be lost to time, which is a bit scary. Oh, yeah. I mean, Eastman died, what, in 1990? I was born like seven years later. Y'all can do the math and figure out my age from there. But, I mean, that's just, it's scary to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the composers that are out now releasing music now, you know, they might be on earshot. Definitely give them a listen and support their work so that, they don't end up on this podcast yeah please um all that said there's some other very awesome camp events that you should definitely take a look at um han how about you give us a little summary of you know some of the past events future events yeah so starting with future get future events um as i mentioned before in march 24th to 26th is going to be campground 22 in tampa florida very beautiful time of year to go to tampa florida i couldn't recommend a better time of year to go to florida seriously and there's going to be some amazing performers you can find the full list of performers on the contemporary art music projects website it's just contemporaryartmusicproject.org and totally i totally recommend you consider attending or if you can't travel down to florida to tune in online it's gonna be a lot of fun yep um i definitely recommend it and of course for um the camp or campground 22 there is a fundraiser going on um where you can invest in what we do um the contemporary art music project on gofundme so if you go on the website you'll find the donation link and thank you to everyone who's donated already and if you can't donate, please share around. It definitely helps us keep doing what we do um, and spreading music around the world. Yeah, and go back and listen to some of the past concerts. They're all available on the Contemporary Music Project's website. Just go under events and scroll down and it'll have a list of all the events and it'll have a little click here button to each stream. Yes, and finally, you can also hear a special podcast, um, Piano Talk. This is between Unmiko and Tyler Klein. Unmiko, one of the co-founders of Camp, um, talking with composer Tyler Klein. So this is a really cool one that you can kind of uh, listen to right on the website, actually. Truly a dynamic duo. I cannot recommend a better <laughs> group of people to listen to. Yeah, Tyler has great music, and Unmiko, really amazing pianist and also doing amazing things can confirm yes with camp right now all that said thank you for joining us too and we hope you tune in next time for some more discussion on composers that should be listened to more musicians instrumentalists everything in between um, thank you for your support please share this around and we will see you on the next episode take it easy y'all and happy november <laughs>